God's word in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would... Help us to know your kindness, your compassion, your forgiveness, that we would then live that out to those around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's interesting how fads can come and go. The bell-bottoms of the past go out of style, only to come back. There's loose jeans, then there's tight jeans, and there's loose jeans. There's men who wear coaching shorts almost up to their hips, and then they wear them almost three inches below their knees. And then they make their way back up again. It's not just clothing. You could walk into certain homes and you go, boy, this was done in the 1950s. Or, wow, that's the 80s. Or, man, this is early 2000s. One interesting fad that I've noticed over the last few years is wearing clothes with moral exhortations on a shirt. Might be something like, be the good, believe in yourself, be kind. And depending on the shirt, there's nothing wrong with wearing a shirt like that. But it's interesting for a culture that says, don't preach at me, we go around wearing shirts that preach to one another. And though the shirts are plentiful, I'm not sure I've noticed any change in our nation's goodness or kindness due to the plethora of messages we're getting about it. Now, this morning, we move to one of the most popular messages of Christianity. You know, the commands that are going to follow in chapter 5, some people find those repressive and horrible. But here, almost everyone loves the message of compassion and kindness. Yet the sad irony is, as we as a culture move away from Christian convictions, we undercut the very thing that is needed, the very basis for such kindness. Now, I want to get to the core of the sermon, but before I want to elaborate on this a little bit, because I think it's really important to understand how we as a culture can preach one thing, we preach be kind, and yet we live so differently. You may have heard of Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor, but the British historian, same name. When he grew up, he grew up in a Christian home, and he rejected it. He became a British historian. As he became an adult, he thought his Christian upbringing was backwards. However, he came across something. As he was reading about the Spartans, the Greeks, the Romans, he realized what they said was right and wrong was radically different from what he actually held to be right and wrong. He writes, We like the Spartans, but they practice a particularly murderous form of eugenics and train the young to kill uppity people by night. Along with this, Caesar was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. On top of that, it was not just the extreme callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. He then continues in his writing by saying, In contrast, 
our concern for the weak and oppressed was marked more enduringly by the stamp of biblical right and wrong. Familiarity with the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of the gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not suffer it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the 2,000-year-old revolution that Christianity represents. It's the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is more noble to suffer than to inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. You know, what he's saying is that many of us are still reaping the fruit of Christianity, things like the, that we should have kindness, forgiveness, compassion, but we haven't realized that we have severed the roots. And yet, as you know, it's not too much long after you sever the roots of a tree that the fruit begins to wither on the vine. And the point of all this is if we're going to be compassionate, if we're going to be kind, we have to sink our roots into who Christ is. And that's what Paul has done. You may have noticed a very obvious point, and that is that we're not the beginning of Ephesians. We're moving to the end, and Paul saved these exhortations for how to live for the end. He first grounded us. He sunk our roots in God's love for us, God's choosing us, God's kindness. And then, once we know who God is, he calls us to live that way. This morning, we're going to look at this. First, notice how he tells us in verse 31, to put away bitterness, clamor, and malice. And then in verse 32, to put on kindness and compassion. We'll save forgiveness for a later week. But first, putting away all bitterness, clamor, and malice. And we're to put away all bitterness, which often comes from three things. You know, first, bitterness often comes when we remember how we were sinned against and play that videotape over and over in our mind. We start to hold a grudge and we tell others how we were wronged. The tragic irony is bitter people's cynical outlook on life often becomes self-fulfilling. They remember the ways they've been wronged, dwell on it constantly, and end up not being the type of person you want to be around. Thus, their relationships often deteriorate as they get caught up in the vortex of their own bitterness. Second, sometimes bitterness stems not from what someone did, but what they did not do. You go out of your way to help them. You give your time, your energy. And what do they do in response? Nothing. They don't say anything. They don't acknowledge anything. And you become bitter. Now, I'm not saying we should be fine with people not recognizing our efforts. And it's not wrong to have frustrations. But bitterness comes in when we harbor a resentment. When we can't think about those people without dredging up what they did or didn't do against us. Well, third, other times bitterness comes from envy and jealousy at others. You know, this is King Saul from the Old Testament who was mostly okay with David until he heard the people singing, David has, or King Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Saul became so bitterly angry 
the next day he tried to kill David. Now probably many of us are not seeking, hopefully all of us are not seeking to kill, but we may be bitter that they always get invited to the party, and I never get invited. They get another vacation, and I'm still stuck in Wichita Falls. They're always getting what they want, and I never get what I want. And yet Paul calls us to put away all bitterness. You know, bitterness ultimately is attacking God because he's the one who gives us the vacation or not. He's the one who allowed David to kill the ten thousands and Saul his thousands. Thus bitterness also robs us of gratitude because our vision gets shrunk from what we have because we're always comparing it with others. Now, if you're into being a warrior, and I know we're not all, so some of you would be like, I could care less. But if you're into being a warrior, you might like the fact that people say, you've killed thousands. I mean, that's a rather impressive statement. You have killed thousands, again, if you're into that type of thing. But not for Saul. He's so bitter, he can't focus on the fact that he's probably one of the greatest warriors of his time because that guy's a better warrior. And that makes him bitter. And so he's lost his gratitude for God. And bitterness is such a dangerous snare that Hebrews 12, 15 warns, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Many people, the author of Hebrews warns, have been led into sin, because rather than plucking that bitter root, they water it. They fertilize it. They savor their bitterness. And bitterness eats away at us. Proverbs 14.30 A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy. That envy of bitterness makes the bones rot. Bitterness is like an acid eating away at who you are. You know, no one leaves time with a bitter person and goes, I always enjoy my time with them. You know, I just always feel lift up and inspired. We all leave and shake our head and go, how'd they become so cynical? Man, you're with them and you just feel drained as their bitterness like seeps into your life. Yet though we can often recognize the destructive nature of bitterness, we have a hard time giving it up. One author writes, of the seven deadly sins, the bitterness of anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, smack your lips over grievances long past, Roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come to save to the last tooth and morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You're like drug addicts. We can realize we are ruining ourselves. This is horrible. Why am I holding on to it? And yet we say just a little bit longer. I just really want to savor the joy I get from being the victim in this situation. Friends, for your sake, for those around you, for the glory of God, put all bitterness away. Rather than being angry at people and God, turn the issues over to God. No, He has better plans for your life than you can ever imagine. And then as we'll dive into the future, forgive those who have harmed you, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now Paul gives 
several other words here that we are put away in verse 31. But we kind of looked at many of these when we were in verse 26 about be angry and do not sin or let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. So I'm going to focus now on clamor. Put then, he tells us, anger, wrath, clamor, and slander. Now, clamor is not a word we, that we use very much, but it's basically talking about shouts of rage. It's that angry raised voice in a dispute. It's that red face, temples bulging, screaming of people. Proverbs 29.9 warns, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. You know, some people seemingly have no idea or concept of how to have a discussion without it turning into a yelling and screaming match. And Paul knew of this firsthand. Years before, Paul had been in Ephesus, and by the hand of God, many people in Ephesus had come to faith in Christ. In fact, so many that the local idol makers began to notice their prophets were shrinking. And so they led the town to go against Paul. And in Acts 19.28, it records, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were yelling for the praise of Artemis and also yelling to destroy Paul. Paul will escape, but later he'll be in Jerusalem. And there, men in Jerusalem think that Paul took a man who wasn't a Jew into the temple. They became furiously angry, it says in Acts 22, 22. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. In contrast to this out-of-control rage, this yelling, Paul calls us to be angry and not sin. That we should control our emotions and the words coming out. Proverbs warns, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 17, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Let me make a quick application to parents. First James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You, know, you yelling at your child may make you feel better in the moment. And we can rationalize. Well, they need to learn that things are wrong and there's righteous anger. And yes, there is righteous anger. And yes, they need to learn that things are wrong. But we want them to change from the heart. We don't want them to stop in action because, boy, mom's really going to lose it if we do this. So we want to stir them to realize, look, my disobedience is not ultimately against mom or dad, which it is, but ultimately it's against God. And so when you go to correct, if you find yourself about to lose it, just say, why don't you go to your room? And then take some time. And calm down. And then go in wanting to talk to them about their relationship. Not just with you, but their relationship with God. Trying to lead them to holiness. Not just so that there's peace and quiet for you. Well, Paul wraps up his list of things Christians should put away by adding along with all malice. You know, malice marks the exact opposite of how a Christian should live. We should be seeking to do good for others. And yet malice is a desire for others' harm. It's the rejoicing when other people weep. 
It's the weeping when other people rejoice. It's the planning of ways to harm others rather than the planning of ways to bless others. And sadly, too often the thoughts come into our mind of what that person did and then we can start walking down a path of, oh, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to cover my tracks by this and if they catch me, I'll have this excuse and we can get down a dark, dark place. And so as soon as those malicious Vindictive thoughts come. We need to replace them with forgiveness, kindness, and compassion. And to those positive virtues we now turn. Because Paul tells us in verse 32, putting on kindness and compassion. I'm sure you've played word association games. Someone says a word or a topic and you have to say what comes to your mind. So this is actually interactive now. So I'm going to say a word, and you say something back. And this can tell you a little bit about me, that this my first topic is dessert. Chocolate. There we go, chocolate. There we go, brave soul. All right, dessert, chocolate, relaxation. The beach. I didn't expect that from her, but all right, the beach. (laughs) All right, hobbies. Work. Well, right, that's a, he's been listening to the sermons. Way to go. Work, that's a great hobby. What about the word kind? You don't have to answer that one. I believe the Ephesians would have thought of Christ for two reasons. You know, first, for a very kind of wordplay reason, is the word for kind in Greek is krestos. C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S, where the word for Christ is Christos. One letter difference. So they hear the word kind, they hear Christos, and they would think, oh, well, that's very similar to literally the sounding of the word Christ. But as well, Paul has reminded them of the kindness of Christ. Flip back two chapters, and we'll look at these verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, we were dead, we were enemies, and yet God was kind. And in God's kindness he sent his Son, to save us and we will forever enjoy the immeasurable riches of God's kindness it tells us we've made this point regularly but it bears reminder that any action any attitude any attribute or character that God calls us to have is because God is like that God is kind and Paul didn't just say God has kindness though he has immeasurable kindness and for all eternity we will enjoy and be amazed at God's boundless and measurable kindness and God will show kindness to us for all eternity and he is currently showing kindness toward all people Paul writes in Romans 2 4 or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance 
You know, God would be just, he would be fair, he would be right if he brought immediate punishment on all of us. Yet due to God's kindness, he waits, hoping that we'll repent and that we'll turn from our sin and be spared of the punishment we deserve. That same kindness then leads to the patience and forbearance that should now flow through us. This is why one of the fruits of the Spirit we read of earlier is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. You know, do you have a kindness that leads to forbearance and patience with those around you? And you might be thinking, well, easy for you to say. Try being patient. Try being forbearing and long-suffering with my brother, my Sister, my boss, my neighbor, my coworker, they're going to make me lose my mind. However, I'm not saying it's easy. And it's not natural. Galatians 5, which we read earlier, told us what was natural. Those are the works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, angry outbursts, rivalries, disagreements. That's natural. You know, sometimes we're so used to natural, we just don't realize, oh, that's what we do. But it's not actually normal. That we all die is not the way God intended it. That's not normal. But you know what's normal, sadly? Is that every single home, every single workplace, every single community, sadly even every single church, at times has conflict. Why? Why do we have this conflict everywhere? Why? Well, because of the works of the flesh coming out in us. It doesn't matter. You can be rich or poor. You can be white or black. You can be male or female. We're all naturally inclined towards conflict. The only way we're going to be able to be kind like God wants us to be is if something supernaturally happens in our life. If the Spirit of God comes in by faith and causes us to trust in Christ as He gives our focus off of ourselves and onto Christ, it makes us stand in wonder and awe at who He is and what He's done. And the more we are amazed and at awe at what God has done for us, the more we then reflect that in our life to others. You know, as we marvel that in the face of our sin, even our continual sin after being saved, that God is patient, that He forbears, that He is long-suffering, we then can turn around to that person who it's still hard to be that with and show a little more forbearance and patience and long-suffering. And just as God is kind, so we must be to all as well. That's why 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, Love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You know, sadly, too often we only express kindness to those who are like us, who agree with us. Yet how will the world ever come to trust a Savior who does good for His enemies if we never reflect that to them? If all they see is our rage, our anger, our wishing them evil then they'll just see what's natural. But for us to respond to false accusations, unfair caricatures, enmity against us, to respond to that with kindness, with 
patience, with goodness, that is supernatural. A response like that can only be explained by the Spirit of God. And part of being kind to people is treating them with the respect and dignity they deserve, no matter their physical appearance, their class, their religious beliefs, their political affiliations. Too often, though, we treat people with contempt, which, as one person describes, is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Some consider Dr. John Gottman to be the leading expert on marital reconciliation. People have watched his methods, watched his study, and they've observed that he can often, after the first session, pretty accurately tell, is this couple going to make it or not? And he says the main way he can tell is not anger. It's not other main warning signs we would think of. He says the main warning sign that the marriage is going to fail is contempt. Issues like sarcasm towards one another, sneering, hostile humor, eye rolling. All of these effectively communicate to the other person, you're worthless. You don't matter. And yet, we're called to kindness. To show that they do matter, no matter how much we disagree with them. And so, it may not be a spouse, but do you show care or contempt for that co-worker? What about that sibling, or those people of that political party, or that lifestyle? Christians, we should be known for our kindness towards all those around us even those with whom we strongly disagree. And if we're filled with the kindness of Christ, we will have compassionate or tender hearts like Christ has. The Greek word, which you may have in your Bible in Ephesians 4, either translated tender-hearted or compassionate, really comes from a Greek word that refers to the bowels, or like the guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from our innermost core. And thus, compassion is not just a fleeting feeling. It rises from the depths of your being. And let's look at five various ways that the depth of Jesus' being showed compassion. We're going to look at a few verses. So flip back first to Mark chapter 6. And we'll work our way through a couple examples in Mark and then two in Luke. So Mark chapter 6. Very well-known story. The only miracle told in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. But it begins in Mark 6, verse 34. It says, When he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd, and began to teach them many things. So first, Jesus because of his compassion, fed people spiritually. You know, Jesus could look out and see their spiritual need, and he didn't just have feelings of empathy. His compassion led him to do something. He realized their spiritual hunger, and he fed them by teaching them. Second, it didn't stop there, for because of his compassion, he fed people physically. You know, right after this, Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. And then two chapters later, Jesus does it again. Flip over to Mark chapter 8, verse 2. 
Another crowd gathers in verse 2 of chapter 8 says, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You know, Jesus had his eyes wide open and he recognized the spiritual and physical needs of people. Not only did he recognize them, but his compassion led him to care for them. You know, Jesus didn't sit around and grumble to the disciples. What kind of idiots are these that are going to come out to the wilderness to talk to someone and listen to them, and they don't even bring food? These grifters, I'm probably going to give them this food. You know how many people are going to come up afterwards and say thank you? Just a few. Jesus doesn't berate them. He doesn't get angry. He knows that many won't give thanks, and yet he still cares for them and shows compassion. Third, because of Christ's compassion, he brought the dead back to life. Flip over to the book of Luke, verse, sorry, chapter 7, verse 13. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is walking, and God so times his walk that as he's walking into the town of Nain, a widow is leading out her only son in a funeral, in his funeral procession. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 7.13 says, And the, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. You know, Jesus didn't say, Well, this is awkward. This year ruined my day. Here I am trying to go for a nice walk and i got to look at a dead body. I mean, come on. You're ruining my day. No, he saw, he could recognize the anguish, and in his compassion he said, Do not weep. Now, as you try to help people, you learn various things you should and should not say. When someone's at a funeral, probably one of the top ten things is not, hey, don't cry. So how is Jesus showing compassion? When he's telling someone who just lost their only son and is already a widow, don't cry. Well, if Jesus is only a good philosopher, if he only had good moral teachings then he's not being compassionate at all. And yet Jesus was more than a good teacher. Jesus was the Son of God. So he is not just going to say, don't weep. Notice what he says next, verse 14. Then he came up and touched the buyer, the wooden plank that the young man was on, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And notice the dead man, not the man in a coma or the man really sick, the dead man set up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus, in his compassion, brings back the dead to life. And yet this is not just physically. This is a picture of what Jesus is going to do for all of us. Because in his compassion, he's going to go to the cross. You know, that's what we took communion for. We sang about how he stood in our place. He had to be on the cross. Because that's where we deserve to be in his compassion compelled him to go and die. And as we've seen, even while we were still enemies. And so Jesus even instructs us to have compassion on our enemies. So forth, thus, because of his compassion, he encouraged caring even for enemies. Flip over a few chapters to Luke chapter 10, the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. And remember, it begins because a Jewish lawyer is trying to evade loving his neighbor. And in the midst of it, Jesus tells of the Samaritan in Luke 10.33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had 
compassion. You know, the Samaritan in their day was the enemy of the Jew. And yet the Samaritan showed compassion to his enemy. Notice not only did he feel compassion, he showed compassion. And so Jesus is using this story to show us, look, we need to show compassion even to our enemies. And this was not a new teaching by Jesus, Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will reap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Your compassion for your enemies, God promises to reward you for that. And Jesus' command for kindness is much more radical than learn how to be socially polite. Learn how to not cut when you get to the buffet line. Those are good things. Jesus' kindness, the action he's calling us to are actions that are impossible without divine help. To love the enemy, to care for the broken. And fifth, because of his compassion, Jesus welcomes rebellious sinners. Flip over to Luke chapter 15, another famous parable of Jesus. It all begins in verse 1 of chapter 15 with the religious leaders being upset that Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus tells three parables, all of something that's lost. There's a lost sheep that is found. There's a lost coin that is found, and there's a lost son. And we know this last parable is the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the younger prodigal who rebelled. He then went and wasted his money on wild living, and then, though, he came to his senses. We read of his return, of his coming to tell his dad, Look, just let me be a servant. And notice what it says in Luke 15, verse 20. And the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You know, this son had shamed his father. He had abandoned his father. He had wasted his inheritance in wild living. And the father knew all this. And yet, at the first sign of his son's return, his compassion leads him to run embrace and kiss his son. Christ's compassion welcomes rebellious sinners. Again, though, we often have no desire to be like this. When they hurt us, well, I'm going to hurt them back. They do something else, well, they better learn that they better not ever do that to me again, so I'm going to make sure they know. And we're never going to be able to live out this compassion this kindness, if we don't first delight in the fact that that's how God treats us. Until we realize that we're the spiritually hungry. We're the dead in the story. We're the enemy in the story. We're the rebel. And God, in his kindness, in his compassion, was willing to show love to us. Until we realize that, we won't have the power to live this out. When we lived in Ohio, one of our favorite places to visit as a family was the Slate Run Historical Farm. The farm takes you back in time to the 1880s, and they still do all of the work on the farm as they did then. So if they want wood, they go find a tree, they chop it down, they then haul it with horses by the house, they use wedges and axes to split it up, 
and then they use other hand tools to get it to the size they need. They're going to feed the livestock and animals there. They're going to feed themselves. So, well, they get it from their own field, their own orchard, their own garden that they plant. Right next to the farmhouse is a hand pump, where if you get it going fast enough, water comes up from the ground. However, the pump only works as long as it taps into a water source. If the pump was running down into dirt, you can pump all you want. You can pump till you got a shoulder aching and not a drop of water will come out. Our spiritual, our moral life are very much like that pump. If you have your pump tapped into the deep reservoir of God's character, then living, flowing water will flow out of your life. However, if you have not sunk yourself, if you have not put your life into God, then you can pump vigorously, but no life-giving water will come out. You can wear a shirt that calls you to be kind, but until your heart is overwhelmed with God's kindness, you'll never be as kind as God calls you to be. Yes, again, you might be socially polite. You might know how to be in public and not be rude, but to care for enemies... To welcome back the person who rebelled against you. To go out and feed the spiritually and physically hungry will not happen unless you have sunk your life. You have sunk your wonder and amazement into who God is. I remember hearing of a Christian woman named Susan and her experience at a Starbucks drive-in. She pulled up and I don't always know why, but the line was wrapped around the corner extremely long. She was waiting. She looked up, and it was one of those moments, well, wait, are you next to pull up, or am I? And the other person thought she's going to cut. And so they hit their gas, pulled in front, lowered their window, and let out a stream of expletives. And Susan sat there and thought, and looked at the woman, and like, you know, that's where I was 10 years ago. Same car, same ponytail, same frustration. And so... When she got up to pay, when she got up to order, she did something that I hope we could do. She said to the loudspeaker, I want to pay for the woman in front of me, and please tell her I hope she has a better day. You know, I share that story because we often think of Christianity in these big moments of life. You're going to be Corey Ten Boom, and you're going to wonder, am I going to save the Jew, or am I going to turn them over to the Nazis? We think of some stand at work where you're going to be there, and everyone's going to say, stand for Christ. Or bow to Caesar. But it's often the day in and day in, day out moments of life. How do you respond when they take that last leftover in the refrigerator? How do you respond when they cut you off in line? How do you respond to not being the recognition you deserve? You know, in the story, Susan didn't act like, well, what that person did wasn't wrong. It isn't no big deal. Well, no, she realized it was wrong. And yet, she responded to the anger, she responded to the hate with kindness and compassion. And that is just such a small picture of God's greater kindness and compassion. We did more than cut him off on a drive through We have rebelled against him. We've said we want to lead our life our own way. We've lived lives of little gratitude for what he gives us every day. And yet, he's shown compassion. He has said, if you will return to me, I will forgive you. So may we reflect that same kindness and compassion.
to those around us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is no one like you. You are so different than who we are and what we want to be like. And yet we thank you that in your deep kindness, you sent your son to rescue us from us. To rescue us from the lifestyle that ruins us. Not just now, but for eternity. And so Lord, would we not just know the truths of Christianity in our heads, but would they sink into our heart that we would be amazed, that we would wonder at who you are, and then that we would live that out to those around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.